Welcome to the Grateful Historians Podcast, powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. I'm Lavelle, along with Chance, and we are educators with a passion for rural, local, and regional Southern history. As always, I am joined by my friend and colleague, Chance Carden. Chance, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me again. Um, today, I believe we're going to be talking about the now extinct town of Greensboro uh, and its importance, some of the people there, and why it became a ghost town. And I think this is going to be a really interesting podcast, not just for Greensboro itself, but th- there are several communities uh, that have more or less disappeared in this local area. And uh, even people who landowners in the area probably have seen remnants on their places. Uh, so I think this is really interesting to, to discuss and can't wait to get into that. So before we start, though, uh, we need to figure out exactly what the location of Greensboro was. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that about local landowners because um, every so often as a farmer is going through the field here in this area where Greensboro was, uh, one of those pieces of marble from that courthouse will turn up. And, you know, it's just such a reminder of how connected we are to these events of long ago, but in reality, they're not that long ago. Um, I can remember again, Dennis Dobbs down in Choctaw County telling me about farming and he uncovers a pistol. Um, you know, down in that area uh, from something that happened so long ago, and, and uh, that, that's so interesting. But uh, the location of Greensboro, for those who are not familiar, and I think most people in Webster County are, but for those who are not and would like to know where the old uh, county seat of the original Choctaw County was, uh, if you were to drive today to Highway 82, And as you get to the community of Tom Nolan, which once was an incorporated town but is no longer incorporated, uh, if you turn in Tom Nolan north on Greensboro Road, uh, you will notice you used to see uh, Tom Nolan Baptist Church right there on the corner. They since, when the highway was four-lane, they made a new church and moved it off the highway some several hundred yards but if, you're, if you see the uh, Tom Nolan Baptist Church, you know you're going the right way. It will be down Greensboro Road a couple of miles. On the right, you will see a cemetery called New, well, called Greensboro Cemetery, but it's the one we refer to as New Greensboro Cemetery. Greensboro Cemetery is roughly the location of where the town of Greensboro was. Uh, but However, you can travel down that road a short distance and turn off to a gravel road again to the north, and you will come across another cemetery that is referred to as Old Greensboro Cemetery. Now, I haven't been out there in a long time, but um, if it's the way it was the last time I was there, uh, it's grown up in woods. There are some old graves out there that are totally surrounded by, I mean, trees have grown up in the middle of it. 
a, a, a bit of it was kept cut the last time I was there, but a large portion of it was not. So you could just be wandering along in the woods, and all of a sudden you'd come up on several graves, and some of them had iron fences around them. I mean, it was a it was pretty significant. Uh, but again, the town of Greensboro, the, the one that was the old county seat, is roughly in the location of where Greensboro Cemetery is today. All right, so what was the significance of Greensboro in, in this particular location? Well, I, I think its major importance is twofold. Uh, first of all, it was located along an old, old road that's probably the one of the oldest, if not the oldest, east-west routes throughout North Mississippi. Uh, that road locally was called the Greensboro to Columbus Road. Uh, you still run across traces of it if you know where you are. Uh, I'm sure most people are familiar with the Greensboro Center in Startwell. Uh, the Greensboro Center in Startwell is along the old route of the Greensboro to Columbus Road. The reason it's called the Greensboro Center um, Part of it goes in Columbus. It, it, the road used to take you to uh, the port in Columbus. And it came from Columbus through what's now Starkville, uh, the extinct town of Double Springs, which was a significant town at one time. People don't realize that, but Double Springs was a large town at one time. Uh, comes through Choctaw County by Fellowship Baptist Church, excuse me, through uh, Crossroads Baptist Church, goes in the area of LaGrange Road and would come out next to the cemetery, the old Greensboro Cemetery in Webster County. Uh, so that's the famous road that went through there. And, of course, why is that significant? Okay, why is that road more important than some other roads that we had? Well, back in an era, and again, I'm going back, this is, I'm talking pre-Civil War, uh, so 1840s and 1850s, uh, farmers had to have a route to get their cotton to market. There's no railroad. There's no other roads of significance at all. So I'm farming out here in the middle of nowhere. How am I going to get this crop to market to somewhere where I can get paid for it? Well, the closest place in here, around here, was Columbus to take it to the port, um, to take it to the Tom Bigby so that you could get money for it, which meant you had to carry it across this road that, um, again, now is broken up into a series of local roads. Some of it is. Some of it's just out in the middle of the woods. A friend of mine, Bill Mann, who passed away a couple of years ago, we had this idea. We're always dreaming about history stuff. We were going to trace the old route of the Greensboro to Columbus Road and mark it because it had such historical significance. And, of course, we never got around to doing that. But um, it, it would be an interesting project one day. So this town, Greensboro, was one on one end of it, and Columbus was on the other. The second reason its importance is because it was the county seat of the original old Choctaw County which was, as we've said many times here, a huge geographical area. South of this town, Greensboro, is another extinct town by the name of Bankston down in Choctaw County. There was a road that ran due south from, from Greensboro to Bankston. Bankston at one time 
had the largest textile industry in the state of Mississippi, out here in the middle of nowhere in Choctaw County. Uh, of course, historians of the Civil War will know that uh, Grisham's Raid came down and they burned the facilities there. A man by the name of Wiggins left that territory, went down to Stone County, and started the town of Wiggins, where he also was in the uh, in that business of textiles. So uh, a, a tremendously important place in terms of its history is the old extinct town of Greensboro. So talking about county seat, this, the location of uh, Greensboro is on the western portion of the county, so why is this going to be chosen as the county seat? And, and I think that in and of itself is an interesting history in a lot of different uh, areas, the discussion of where should a county seat be. But being on the western portion, what is going to be uh, the reason for that decision? Well, certainly if we were to look at a modern-day map of Choctaw and Webster County, it wouldn't make sense for Greenboro, Greensboro to be uh, the county seat because it's not in the geographical center because you normally that's what you want you want your county seat to be particularly back in an area when people are traveling by wagon or horse or on foot you want it to be easily accessible to the entire population so you want it in the geographical center by today's map not so but you have to understand as large as Choctaw County was it not only encompassed encompassed uh, Choctaw and Webster counties, but a significant portion of what's today Montgomery County was in it. So that would put Greensboro near the center. Now, when Webster County, which was called Sumner, was broken away from Choctaw, it's no longer in that area. So a much more fitting place for the center would be the town we have today or the community we have today, the village of Walthall which is where the modern-day uh, county seat is. So it moved over time. We'll talk more about that later. But uh, that, that's why in those early days, Greensboro, north of Tom Nolan, would, would be the county seat. Okay, so with the location and some of that primary knowledge here, even though the town is now extinct, uh, what do we know about the town other than its location and how, how it's chosen and why it's chosen for the county seat? And oh boy, what a story this is. Um, there is so much that I could say here, but imagine in your mind, and, and sometimes we talk about old Westerns and we talk about how, you know, they don't conform to reality and that kind of stuff. Well, every once in a while they do. And in this case, if you think of the wildest Wild West town um, that you see in a Western, it might be Greensboro. Um, th that that's just colorful would not be enough to describe it. I, I said that when I was going through this, thinking about it. A colorful place is how I would describe it initially. In about 1839, a brick courthouse was built. Unfortunately, we don't have pictures of it. All we have is an artist's rendition from the plans that that an architect drew. It was an impressive looking building. Um, it had a Baptist church and it had a Methodist church like a lot of towns do. Interestingly enough, to the west, just to the west of the town, was a horse track race, racing place. So people would go to that horse track for, for events out there. 
it was a very political town. Uh, being in the county seat, and again, it being an era when people were so far apart and not able to travel like they can today, politicians would come to speak there and so they could catch most of the, the people in the, in the area, local area. Uh, Jefferson Davis spoke on the steps of the courthouse in Greensboro, Mississippi. Uh, famous politicians. Uh, he spoke there in 1851 in an effort to try to become governor, and he lost that race to Henry Foote, uh, who was a unionist candidate uh, when Jefferson Davis was a little, little bit more free and open to, to the idea of sece- not secession, but uh, states' rights at that time would have been what would have been called. Um, so in 1851, Jefferson Davis was there. But here's where the story gets real interesting, because in the 1850s, There's a lot of rough stuff going on in Greensboro. And the city of Greensboro's board of aldermen passed a law that outlawed the sale of liquor inside the city limits. So what did they do? They went just outside the city limits and started a, quote, suburb, if you want to call it this. It was actually part of the town. It was just where they couldn't, they were outside the legal law, a place called Bucksnort was the name of it. And Bucksnort was about the way that you would describe a place called Bucksnort as being. It had saloons. It had gambling halls. It had extreme violence. I, I, I can't explain to you the, num- the amount of violence that took place there. I will try in just a few minutes with some examples. Um, people got shot on a regular basis. People got robbed on a regular basis. If a stranger came to town with money, there was going to be serious problems. But, you know, I've watched these old westerns where the town would be split down what they call the deadline. You know, you, you, got the, you got the church-going moral side of town, and then you've got the rip-roaring, fun-loving, uh, you know, side where people are committing all sorts of acts and things. That was Greensboro. And, you know, for it to take place in, a, in what I would describe as a – a pretty conservative part of the United States at that time is really, really interesting that it formed that way. Well, I know you said it's difficult to uh, sort of describe some of these instances of violence, but if you could pick just a few uh, significant examples to go off of, to just give us a little bit more specific idea of the violence involved at the time in Greensboro. Uh, One of them was by a doctor who lived in the community who also happened to be an extremely violent person when he was drinking. His name was Dr. T.J. New, N-E-W, T.J. New, who happened to be in the community of Bucksnort one day and said very famously to the people who were there, I will kill the first man coming to town wearing caparis breeches. Now, that's a type of dye um, that can turn clothing a sort of greenish color. Uh, And I don't know what he had against that color dye, but he told people if he saw someone coming into town wearing that color breeches, he was going to shoot and kill them. Well, the next one or two couple of people that he saw, one of those men happened to be wearing that type of dyed pants, and Dr. T.J. New shot and killed him. Shot him with a shotgun. And a load of shotgun blast killed this gentleman who had come to town. His only crime was wearing a pair of 
Capetus Britches. That was not the only man that Dr. New killed. He was guilty of killing at least one more man on the streets of Bucksnort or Greensboro, as it might be called. I have two instances that really explain this. And I almost want to tell them in one podcast because they are such long and detailed stories. But um, if you think the Hatfields and the McCoys was an interesting story, well, then we had our own feud in Webster County called the Gray and Edwards feud between two families. Uh, Highly political. A number of people died. uh, a, A couple of people were hung. But it all happened in the Greensboro area. Um Following the Civil War, our probably most prominent political figure was a man by the name of General Brantley. Uh, General Brantley had served throughout the Civil War, and he came back home. He was an attorney. Uh, He gets involved in a dispute with some men. Uh, His brother lived in Winona. His brother was shot in ambush through the church window while he was attending church one Sunday in Winona, assassinated. General Brantley, while going to Winona on his way back to Greensboro from Winona, uh, with accompanied by a young boy, was shot and killed in ambush on his way returning. And it was said done by a group of Texas men, uh, a couple of whom were considered to be hired outlaws who had come from Texas to do the assassination. Uh, we could get into that a long podcast into into what happened there, but for right now, it, suffice it to say, it was an extremely rough, dangerous, violent place. Um, the criminal John Morrell, who was a um, frequent robber of people along the Natchez Trace in the early days of there, was captured and brought to court in Greensboro. The guard who was going to take him, extradite him back toward the Columbus area, took him back, and in the area south of Matheston, where um, close to where Mr. Howard Sheridan lives, a little little creek there, a little branch called uh, Platner Branch, Morrell, this famous criminal, asked to stop and get water. When they got off the horses and stopped to get the water, he shot and killed the guard who was taking care of him, And he escaped and went back to robbing up and down the Natchez Trace. So um, a lot of violence in the area, back in that area, and particularly in Greensboro. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of history involved with this place um, and a pretty happening place. So with with a place like this, with such a unique history, what's ultimately going to cause it to uh, go extinct, to go away? Well, during the Civil War a group of federal union raiders came through and were destroying property in the area and they torched uh, the city of Greensboro. Um, It was believed for a long time that they set fire to the courthouse. However, it has since been determined that probably what happened is an arsonist set fire to the courthouse. But when it did in 1865, the lack of funds available for replacing everything that needed to be replaced, and it was such a, an opulent type of building, they weren't able to do that. Then you add to it the lawlessness of this Bucksnort area in the post-Civil War area in particular, because now not only do you have 
the lawlessness, but you've got a general state of confusion because of all the post-war stuff. General Brantley comes back and there's no money and, you know, just all that stuff combines to make it just a place that's dwindling in population. People don't want to live there. Well, in the 1870s, Sumner County is formed, which becomes Webster County, and Greensboro is no longer in the center. So as soon as they can, Walthall is formed, and the new courthouse is going to be built in Walthall, and that's going to be the end of the heyday of this town called Greensboro. It's still going to drag on for a while. It had renewed hopes that it might get the railroad when the railroad came through in the 1889 era. But when that didn't take place and the railroad goes to Tom Nolan, what couple of businesses are left also go to Tom Nolan or to Eupora. And it basically becomes a ghost town. And the buildings start to decay. And uh, before long, you're talking about an extinct location instead instead of a town. Um, you know, you go from Jefferson Davis and these famous people speaking there to, uh, some 40 years later, it's just not even hardly recognizable anymore. It's very sad that, um, my friend Bill Dunlap, the artist has talked about sometime getting a group of archeology span students from Mississippi state to go to Greensboro and doing an archeological dig. I think that would be great. Um, if they could turn up something or maybe, maybe turn the clock back in time just a little bit and find some, you know, some period, uh, information from it there. That would be, that'd be so neat. Um, so anyway, that, that's the, that's Greensboro and, 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 uh, this, this famous place in Webster County history that's no longer there. At this time, uh, we would like to pause and mention our sponsor, McGinnis Dirt Services. You can contact Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750 for all of your land improvement needs. If you need a pond built, a levee cleared off, bush hogging, stumps dug, access road or a lane or house pad, for any and all of your land improvement needs, you would do well to contact my friend and former student, Austin McGinnis at McGinnis Dirt Services. His number Again, that number, 662-552-7750 from McGinnis Dirt Services. Also would like to mention another sponsor of our program, Michael Cobb of Farm Bureau Insurance. See Michael for all of your insurance needs, including coverage for your home, your autos, Life insurance plans tailored to meet your individual needs. Michael can take care of all of that for you. Farm Bureau is a Mississippi company, and Michael is a local agent committed to taking care of you. So, go with the home team. Call Michael Cobb at Farm Bureau Insurance. His number is 662-258-7802. Again, Michael Cobb, Farm Bureau Insurance, 662 258 7802. Also, like to give a shout out to a couple of students at East Webster who might be listening to our podcast. A couple of them are faithful listeners, and we appreciate them when they do. Uh, we have a couple today eighth grader Cooper Stitham and 11th grader Dylan Jackson. Like to say thanks to both those guys for being faithful listeners to our podcast. And now we are going to enter into our Favorite segment of mine is we talk a couple of things about some mailbag segments. A chance reminds me every so often not to not to turn into uh, a podcast because that's not what we're intending to do. 
but to give an answer to a couple of questions from some people in the community who might have some things they would like to, to hear an answer to. So we've got a couple of them today. Chance, what we got in our mailbag segment today? Well, our first one is from Tyler Gregg, who would like to know about prohibition in our area in Mississippi. Former student of mine, Tyler Gregg, who I hope is doing well, and I'm glad he asked this question. Prohibition in Mississippi, and particularly in our area, interesting topic. Mississippi was the first state to ratify the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which outlawed the manufacture, the distribution, and the sale of alcohol. Mississippi was also the last state to repeal uh, their statewide prohibition law. So it endorsed the 18th Amendment, it followed the 18th Amendment, and legally at least, up until 1966, it was illegal to sell alcohol in the state of Mississippi. Now, to be honest, this is kind of a, a wink and a nod situation to some things that were happening, particularly, let's, let's use the Mississippi Gulf Coast as an example. A lot of times, local leaders knew that people in the 1950s, let's just say as an example, or not early 1960s, were selling alcohol. It was just, don't talk about it, we won't say anything, that was just the nature of how it was done. However, in a lot of places... By the 1966, um, the, the new law allowed counties to set their own policies on alcohol. So you then came up with the status of the dry county versus the wet county, and local county officials could make the determination as to whether or not alcohol could be sold in businesses or not. So you had this discrepancy between the two. And that exists even up until this day that we, we still are dealing with those issues of wet and dry counties. But to talk about how, what was it like during the Prohibition era when it, was, when it was technically illegal in Mississippi for businesses to sell alcohol, you had this term called a speakeasy which was a place that sold illegal alcohol on the inside. And I will give you a good example. The business known as Lusco's in Greenwood, the restaurant. Uh, if you travel to Greenwood today and go to the restaurant known as Lusco's, it's still set up like it was during the times of Prohibition, where people could go in, they could bring alcohol with them into the establishment or buy the alcohol, but each one of the booths inside the restaurant had a curtain that you could pull the curtain shut and there was a buzzer on the table. If you wanted a waiter or needed assistance, you could ring that buzzer and get service. But otherwise, you were left to your own privacy. And they, they leave it now just as a remnant to those earlier days as kind of a novelty, but that's the way things were done back in that era. Um, and that's just a good example. There were a lot of them in a lot of places. Um, one we dealt with much more common in our area, Webster County, would have been something called not a speakeasy, but the word would have been blind tiger. Okay, so what was a blind tiger? Why did they use that name? I'm thinking particularly of Matheston. Okay, a number of these brick stores in the back of them would have a window in an unusual place, higher than normal, smaller than normal. It was not to let 
light into the room. It wasn't for viewing purposes. What it was was a location where a person could tap on that window from outside, reach up above eye level just as far as people could reach, tap on that window. The window would slide open. The person on the inside would have some type of alcoholic beverage. You pass them the money. They passed you the drink, and you could then have that transaction. And why did they do that? Well, they did that because in case there was some sort of raid by the police or whatever, the person on the inside could say, well, I don't know who I sold it to. And the person on the outside could legitimately say, well, I don't know who sold it to me because they really never saw each other. Hence the term blind tiger. I know that those happen locally because I've seen references to them. I've seen references in newspapers to uh, the newspaper editor saying that there needed to be a, a the police needed to shut down the blind tigers in the community. I know that in one instance, at least in uh, the Matheston area, there was a local uh, taxi service, which it was said was actually used not for a quote-unquote taxi all the time, but to distribute alcohol. So they were running illegal alcohol out of it. In another instance, and I remember this as a kid, I asked some older people here in Matheston when I was a young man, I said, you know, why, why do so many of the older men, there was a group of older men who lived here who walked with a very distinct, not a limp as much as dragging a leg, like they had a, like their leg was dead or, or it didn't function correctly. And they told me that what happened is a local man was running uh, moonshine through a steel but the steel that he used, he used the radiator out of a car, which contains lead. Now, it does contain the copper, yes, but it contained lead. And when they ran that stuff through there, they developed poisoning. It, it caused poisoning of their system, and it damaged their nerves. So um, they, the, the term for it, and people have probably heard it before, is Jake leg. Uh, if you ever heard anybody having Jake leg, it's when your legs they don't work correctly because of nerve, nerve damage because the slang term for moonshine was Jake. Uh, so hence the term Jake leg. So, yes, I mean, there's, there's an interesting history with prohibition in our area. Uh, and I'm going to leave it at that because that's my five minutes are about up, Chance. You did that pretty well. Prohibition's a pretty big topic, so I'll let you slide with that one. Um, our next question comes from Damon Johnson, who would like to know what happened to the Spring Valley Post Office, and was the old jail beside Matheston First Baptist Church really used? Um, so two separate questions here, but uh, talking about the Spring Valley Post Office and the jail beside Matheston First Baptist Church. And I guess I should say that... Uh, as far as the jail goes beside the church, my dad would always tell me that's where the boys would be kept who wouldn't behave during church and sit still. So put more fear in me than what the preacher did. But uh, so, so tell the truth, Mr. Lavelle, did, did that jail actually ever get used? And was it ever specifically used to keep children who wouldn't pay attention in church? Well, I, I don't think the part about the children in church was true, but I can say with uh, definity that jail was used. I, I, we probably, if, if we're looking for a true crime story, 
probably wouldn't be the most uh, entertaining stories concerning that jail because it would mainly be what we would call a dry out tank. You know, it was for people who had maybe uh, imbibed a little bit too much liquor and, you know, we place them in jail for their own benefit, you know, for own safety as much as anything else. And you hold them for a few days or whatever and you turn them loose. But I would think that that would probably be the case. But that jail was used. Um, It was built during the depression years that is one of those typical um wpa uh works progress administration new deal type programs from the 1930s a little small brick building um when you walked into it there was it was pretty bare bones there was a cell to the left a cell to the right and immediately in front of you a toilet in the back corner and that's all there was one, a couple of little small windows Entirely made out of brick with brick and concrete. But yes, it was used, uh, but not for, I don't think, for really many serious violent crimes. Uh, the next question that he asked, which is totally separate, but uh, he asked, what happened to the Spring Valley Post Office? What, what happened to it? Uh, and here's the thing that I would bet that a lot of people don't know, even today. Most small post offices, even today, are not owned by the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, the the uh, post office in Matheston is owned by an individual who lives in Columbus. The Postal Service leases these buildings from individuals. Now, they probably could have paid for them 100 times over by now with the lease money that they've paid over the years because this building in Matheston was built when John F. Kennedy was president. Um, and they're, you know, they still lease it, but at any rate, most of them are now let's go back to that era when there would have been a spring Valley post office, not a separate building. That building would have been in the general store in the community. You watch these old shows and you see the little, little postal service thing where they have little cubby holes where the letters go in. Almost all of those post offices back in that era were part of a store particularly in communities that weren't incorporated. So I don't know exactly where that was because we don't have really good information. We know that Spring Valley had a couple of churches, a blacksmith shop, and a number of stores. I'm almost certain that it would have been in one of those general stores um, in, in the area of Spring Valley. And I do know that the last postal record in 1890 from Spring Valley says, and it's a um, short one line, moved to the town of Matheston, and it became the Matheston Post Office. So, uh, interesting question. Our final question for today is going to be one from Mark Jones, who wants to know when Pigeon Roost was established. Um and I'm honestly kind of curious about the name itself, if you have that information too. Uh, but when Pigeon Roost was established and how it came about with its name. The name Pigeon Roost is actually comes from a Choctaw name. Um, the Choctaws named it Pigeon Roost, except the name wasn't exactly Pigeon Roost. The Choctaw term was, I believe I'm saying this correctly, Without looking at it on paper, Pucci and Nusi, which meant in literal terms in English, pigeon sleep. Um, back in the era when there were so many of these passenger pigeons coming over, it was stated that in the area we call Pigeon Roost now, which is south of Matheston, 
that there were so many that migrated there that they would break the limbs off of trees from the sheer weight. Now, here's the sad part. By the early 1900s, the bird is extinct. So many of them were killed out. But during that early days, when um, I have seen people's records of that to say that they stopped one time to try to record when these things would fly over exactly how long a flight of them would be. And one time it was over 24 hours, continuous birds flying over from north to south. That's how numerous they were back in one era. So there was a natural landing spot for them, and the Choctaws named it that. The local people just picked up the name. Now, Pigeon Roost was the home of David Folsom, the Indian chief. And this is, a, again, another whole segment unto itself and a long one, which we're going to do very soon. But uh, he was uh, half white, half Choctaw. He was the son of Nathaniel Folsom, a man who married two Choctaw women and had 24 children between the two of them. And one of them was David, his son, who kept the uh, trading post along the Natchez Trace. When he leaves and this area becomes uh, part of the no longer Indian nation but belongs to the state of Mississippi, it starts opening up for settlement. I can't give an exact date. I can say that there was a post office in Pigeon Roost by the early 1840s. Um, So they were receiving mail from the U.S. Postal Service by that time, which tells me that probably the late 1830s would be a a good, accurate time for a community. Um, I do have this, which I think is interesting. This is from a newspaper, period newspaper, and this is actually – a little bit later, but from 1846, here is the postal route leaving Columbus from Columbus. Now let's listen to some of these names that are now extinct. This is the mail route from Columbus to Plymouth, to Hickory Grove, to Starkville, to Double Springs, to Pigeon Roost and to Greensboro. 65 miles and back twice a week. So twice a week, a mail carrier went from Columbus to the now extinct location of Plymouth and also Hickory Grove extinct to Starkville to Double Springs, which we know as a community, but not as a town to Pigeon Roost and then to Greensboro. And that was twice a week, the mail route to that area. Um, could, could say a lot about Pigeon Roost and why it moved later and, and, and left, but uh, to answer his question, that's, that's about as good as I can do with that question for, for Pigeon Roost at this time. We will spend a lot of time one day talking about David Folsom because he's such an interesting person and the, and the events that happened in, in Pigeon Roost both in the late 1700s up to about the 1830s. So we'll, we'll cover that ground. Um, that's going to close our mailbag segment for today. I would like to encourage people who are listening. If you have a question that you would like answered, you can email me at M C A L P I N J L at gmail.com. Again, that's M C A L P I N McAlpin J L at gmail.com. 
please state your name and the topic you would like to have um, brought up, and we'll do our best to get it on a mailbag segment. Some of these things we may know, like Robert Normore had a really good question about town streets, and I can only give him one, but uh, we'll do our best to try to look up that information and see what we can do. I really like this segment. I like the folks being in the community being involved because really what this is about is us all sort of learning together about our past. Until next time, we are the Grateful Historians. Thank you for joining us.